This is On Diversity, a podcast series by the Institute of Policy Studies Singapore. I'm your host, Ong So Chin. Today's episode is called Diversity and the Singapore Media. Once upon a time, traditional media was the main channel of information. We read the daily newspaper, tuned into a couple of TV channels, and listened to a few radio stations. Transmission stopped at midnight, and we all went to bed. The youth of today have never known such a world. They only know one where information is diverse, fragmented, and constantly on, 24-7. They also want to discuss issues more openly, even sensitive ones like race and religion, and to see more diversity represented in their everyday lives. And if Singapore media doesn't meet their requirements, they have access to a world of information in borderless cyberspace. So what does that all mean for Singapore media? How can it stay relevant to all Singaporeans? Or should it? Does media have a role to play in leading public discourse or gathering a consensus? Should that be its job? And how can it walk the fine line between diversity and polarisation? With me today to discuss these issues and more are Mark Tan, founder of Rice Media. Hi, Mark. Hello. Hi. Thanks a lot for having me on this Thanks podcast. for being on the show. And my colleague, Dr. Chu Han Yi, Senior Research Fellow at IPS, where he's the lead investigator for a long-term study on the aspirations and experiences of youth in Singapore. Hello, Han. Welcome to the program. We have a big topic today, so I guess a good place to start would be to define diversity and why it's important. Who wants to go first? Mark? Sure, <laughs> uh, I, can, I can jump right into it. I think that from, at least from my perspective, so if you're talking about it from a media channel or media owner's point of view, obviously you'll be looking at diversity of perspectives in the newsroom. Specifically when, if you're a news organisation that weighs in on fairly political subjects, then you would really be looking at diversity of like, you know, ideological viewpoints. Okay, I mean, I think I should kind of preface this by saying that diversity of viewpoints doesn't mean that all views are given equal legitimacy. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's a starting point. But I think that it is important to, it is important to to, have to be diversity. aware. Yeah, to be aware of the different mm-hmm. ways of thinking and different frameworks, so that as a member of the audience or you know just as a regular person, right, right. you'll be able to kind of right. make a more informed decision. You have traditional media and then we have social media and I guess rice media kind of fits in somewhere in between where you're not really traditional media but you're not really the rabble rousing social media (laughs) (laughs) you're kind of a bit more sensible I guess well I mean like on our good days uh, um, (laughs) so I guess one distinction that can be made or like where we sit into the the whole milieu of things is that I think that if you're like in newsroom so like you know a broadcast platform or like CNA or ST, for example, Mm. then you would really have a responsibility to cover everything. Sure. But then like when you go a little further down the line to like independent media or kind of like digital magazines Mm. like like Rice Media, for Mm -hmm. example, Mm -hmm. our job is to really offer a more curated view. So, and this is also kind of like a function of like the way we're set up, okay? Because like we don't have the resources to cover everything. Yeah. Well, there could be like 200 important things in the news. You have to be um, selective. Yeah, the editor's job or like rather our job is to make sure that, okay, out of these 200 different things that we can talk about, these are probably the five right. things that, that are really important today. Right. So our job is actually like we are the voice that comes after the news. Okay, that's a good positioning. So Han, I mean, what do youth want? Maybe we'll start off yeah. with understanding the youth first. Yeah, good, because, good uh, point. Because <laughs> it's, it's very easy to think of the youth as this monolithic group 
this narcissistic generation, this YOLO generation. But I think what the study that we're doing has shown is that there are actually different types of youths and they are multifaceted and mm. diverse in their, their own ways. Right. You have people who are more concerned with uh, traditional aspirations, our what we call the old school Ollies, where they, are, they still want their HDB flat, they still want a good paying job mm. and they still want to save towards retirement. But you also have liberal Lionels, people mm. with more aspirational goals, who are less concerned with material aspirations. Mm. Yeah, so I think it's important to recognize that mm. the youth and the youth in Singapore are diverse. Right. That's a very, very good point. I think, yeah, we can't just put them all in a monolithic block, right? So, Mark, you are actually at the tail end of the millennial time ban, right? Yeah, I mean, so you like, count you know, as youth. I, by the government's definition, I think I'm at, right at the tail end of it. Yeah, so do you <laughs> identify with Han's definition? Are you the first, uh, the HDB dweller type or the liberal lion type, the, the second definition? Or neither? Oh, well, okay. <laughs> they, they so are like more. The, the, they are more. Yeah, right, okay. the way that I would kind of frame this, at least I can only speak for myself yeah, at this point. I think that this is saying that it's more likely that you're a socialist when you're younger, you're more liberal when you're <laughs> younger, right? And when life gets in the way, you become more practical. So like the mark that you're kind of meeting today would be the more practical conservative mark, right? But I still have that hangover from like, my rebel streak. But you're so, losing it quickly, oh dear. And I think that my experience could reflect quite a lot of, it could reflect a bit of that diversity that you see in the youth today. Because like depending mm. on which stage of their life they are, right, mm. they could actually want different sure. things. It's like you, when you started RICE, right? You were at the beginning stage of being a millennial, being mm. aspirational, you had ideals, right? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I guess when I started RICE, I was already in my 30s. So I was like 31, 32. Late bloomer, okay. Yeah, so... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I think that the, the ideological or rather like the identity that we had when we first started, right? Like, you know, we still very much want that to remain unchanged. Which means like, you know, like we're willing to take risks mm. with the content that we do. Mm. We are willing to take a really open mind towards mm -hmm. different kinds of thoughts. Mm. I think that where it, this is a little bit more measured now is that obviously as running it as a business, right, you have more practical concerns on that side. But right. I think at the core of it, right, we haven't really changed that much mm -hmm. in terms of like our identity. Right. Right. So how do you ensure diversity in your story? Sorry, Han, you were saying something. No, I thought I'll jump in because that sounds like the story of a lot of our youths where when they were younger... The world is their oyster and their aspirations know no bounds. They want to do everything. But as they get older, they finish their NS, they finish their schooling and they get a job. That's when they have to adult. So, we, <laughs> yes, we do some adulting questions with the youth to understand what adulting means. Mm -hmm. I think the first sign of adulting is that they start to pay the bills. Yeah. Like what Mark says, when you have to pay the bills, when you have to adult, then you have more considerations, you have more trade-offs. So the world is not my oyster anymore. Maybe there is still a pearl that I'm looking for, but it's not limitless. There mm -hmm. are trade-offs. Are the youth of Singapore, do they see themselves reflected in the media landscape? Are there enough options for them? I think they have a lot more options than we were growing up. That's true. Yeah, like what you mentioned and what Mark has mentioned when we, as we were growing up or when we were growing up, it's Straits Times mm -hmm. and maybe But now you have not only the news providers. So you have CNA, you have Rice Media, mm -hmm. you have uh, the Mothership. SCMP even, but you also have various platforms. We get our news feeds, not through just the apps mm. for the news agencies, but also through uh, yeah. Twitter or the news aggregators. So that's lots of choices. Yeah. 
And could that be a problem? Because sometimes you're faced with too many choices, you kind of can't really make up your mind or you're torn in different directions or you go down little rabbit holes. I think we can take these conversations two ways. Uh, <laughs> so there is the choices where we are spoiled for choices. Mm. I think we, I guess we have a shared view. There is choice. Yeah. But after the choices, and then youths like choice. They like to choose and choose their own affiliations right. and choose the media outlook that most resonate with them. But mm. after they make the choice, then they tend to fall into this pattern, right? So they fall into this pattern because this space is safe. I like the news that they share. It's edgy, it's woke. Mm. And then you're always chasing after this edgy news and you don't expose yourselves to other diversity. So, so you get locked in to these safe spaces or take it to the other end of the spectrum. These are echo chambers, right? right? Mm. Yeah. So you get reformed mm. tribes, right? But that's the other danger as well, right? So Mark, you were saying earlier, I mean, trying to keep it real at Rice and to always reflect a diverse panoply of views, right? Is that difficult sometimes? I mean, how do you have your editorial meetings and yeah, and but there's so many different points of view coming up and everyone wants to do something and you may not agree. <laughs> well, I think before I guess answer the question, I just want to circle back a little bit on the previous point about the access to a variety of options. One thing I have noticed, right, I would say that the youth of today, compared to where I was maybe when I was 20, they are way more informed. I would say that the level of like critical thinking has really shot up. So I, I would say that Overall, I mean, if you look at it from a broad perspective, I feel that we are in a better place mm. right now, simply because you would be able to engage on a wider variety of issues than you were, I think, like maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Mm. So I think that that's, to me at least, that's mm -hmm. one of the plus points for having like more options. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to be the contrarian here yeah. okay. and say that, yes, they're exposed to a lot of media channels and uh, they're more informed. But whether or not they are critical consumers, mm. it's uh, something else. I think we can explore that a little bit because I've always also seen instances where they react before they deliberate. Mm. So you, we know of the online vigilantes, mm. the keyboard warriors, uh, where they respond first and then, well, think if they think at all later. Mm. So the name and shame yeah. uh, or the people who break the mask-wearing measures post them on Facebook, I will make you famous. That's the, that's, the, <laughs> right. that's, that's the line that's quite popular these days, right? But is it only youth that are to blame for that? No, or, I, I think it's everybody. Yeah. But I, I think... I think Storm started that culture. <laughs> I'm very frank with you. <laughs> but social yeah. media, right? It's the medium that sort of encourages this kind of perhaps antisocial behaviour in a way. Yeah. Mm. And also it's the way that uh, youth or, or we consume news mm. these days because I graze my news on my aggregators yeah. and then my friends share on our WhatsApp group chats. Mm. But the long-form reading, which I used to do, I do a lot less because time is very precious. And so I skim. I take in news on the bite-sized pieces. And I've also uh, not done something for a long time, which is to read a newspaper broadsheet from cover to cover. Mm. <laughs> you have that, it online. <laughs> yes, but I don't do that yeah. anymore. Yeah, you, yeah, you, you read it in snack. You snack on the news. So when you read the news from cover to cover, I think the chances of being exposed to views or news articles that you're not looking out for, the serendipitous nature mm. of picking up on news, mm. is lost. Mm. Because mm. when you have an aggregator tell you, or you tell the aggregator, 
what news you want to consume, they will give you that news. And then the algorithms these days are so intelligent that if you like this piece of news on mask-wearing violators, maybe you will like these pieces of news too, yeah. right? So you, you, you get into this loop. That's the only diet that you consume. Right. Sure. I mean, there, there was a period of time when my, honestly, my Facebook feed where it was completely screwed up. I think it was a good, like, seven or eight years ago, I was into, like, a lot of, like, you know, like, intellectual dark web conspiracy theory oh, kind of no. things. So, like, you know, I was getting fed all sorts of nonsense and, like... <laughs> How did you pull out of that? Well, I mean, the, the thing is that, like, it kind of adapts to your reading habits, so that changed over time and then, yeah. So you were smart enough to realise, hey... Oh, uh, no, no, it wasn't, it, was, it wasn't a conscious <laughs> change. Like, I, I wasn't, I didn't go, like, I need to change the algorithm. It's more like my interest kind of, like, just, like, shifted. I see, okay. Yeah. Now that you are, like, a responsible person leading a news business, just want to get down to the brass tacks of it, right? How do your editorial meetings go? Because I remember you told me, you just ran a story, Rice Media just ran an interview with Xia Shue. I understand that was a point of contention with your editorial yeah. team? I wouldn't say contention within the team, but then I think that there was a lot of debate on how we should approach the story. Mm. So this kind of ties back to your earlier question on how do I maintain diversity in the newsroom? Mm-hmm. I think that there are limits on that. I think that like, I would say that it's a much more practical approach mm-hmm. for us to make sure that we have a culture of open-mindedness yeah. as opposed to hiring people like, you know, okay, look, like, let's just say we have two or three writers who have more like liberal views. Let's hire two or three more writers with more conservative views. I don't think it works that way. I think generally speaking, like it is a better approach or how we try to maintain diversity in a newsroom, mm-hmm. right, is to work with people who are generally open-minded. Mm. As human beings, we all have our own biases coming to the table. And I think that is fine. That's just normal. The part in which you're able to kind of interrogate your own biases and at the same time also think critically about it, right? That's an attitude, but it can also be taught. Right. So that's kind of like how we try to do it. I think it's as much a process-driven thing and mm. also a culture thing as well. Right. So for example, like when I say a process thing, meaning that like when we need to interview a more controversial personality like Xia Shui, you know, the process that we have in place is like, what value are we actually bringing to the audience? Yeah. Amongst the different pieces of content or media or articles that, that are out there about her already, mm-hmm. what hasn't actually been discussed yet? And also, I guess some yeah. people say, why give her the oxygen, right? Yes. So in that particular case, right, it really needed to kind of like touch on a more broader, a slightly broader kind of like issue mm-hmm. for us to kind of like get involved in that. Because I think that there's enough has been said about her. And obviously, like, the opportunity for her is to come on board and try and clear the air for her. Mm. It's also a PR move on her, on her part. I of mean, course. I, of course, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, for us, where it became interesting was that it was also a commentary on how we... On online echo chambers, in, in yeah. essence. Right, yeah. which is what Han mentioned earlier. Yeah. Like, you know, it's just trying to break down those echo chambers, Correct. right? Here yeah. from another point of view. So, Han, I mean, talking about echo chambers and diversity, a lot of your work with Youth Steps, the youth program that IPS is involved with, the National Youth Council, it focuses on youth from low-income families, right? Is there a difference in the kind of media they consume? Not in the media they consume, right. I think... Because of the access, the almost ubiquitous access of smartphones, both the uh, youths who are less privileged from lower social economic income statuses, mm-hmm. they consume on the same platforms. Right. But I think what we observe, not in Youth Steps, but in mm. other studies, mm. is that because they're more concerned with bread and butter issues. Right. So the use of the technology, the, the use of the media tends to be for entertainment. Mm. And then when you're in a privileged environment or background where you don't have to worry so much about the bread and butter, then you can use the media to learn 
watch a scientific blog, mm-hmm. uh, video or something. <laughs> so more like capital generating activities right. on the media. Mm. Right. So you learn things on how to present yourself better in an interview or how to pick up digital skills, mm. uh, that kinds of activity. But when you have to worry about everyday concerns and paying the bills, then because you're already thinking about it so much in your daily life, the media then becomes a channel for release of the stress to vent off steam. So they consume more entertainment. Right. So not so much about following causes or climate change or whatever. Yeah, it kind of uh, results in a Matthew effect, we call it in social sciences, where the ones who are already privileged because they have the luxury to explore themselves more or to learn more, Mm -hmm. they are richer in their knowledge. Right. And those who have to resort to the media as an outlet for release of their stress, they kind of get stuck in that grut. Right. I see. So that's something that's interesting, I guess, which you are exploring and We'll get the results at some point. Yep. So this common thread that's coming up is this echo chamber thing and the diversity of views leading to echo chambers. We know that after GE 2020, the sentiment is that young people want to see more diversity in society and have more open conversations about sensitive issues. But at the opening of parliament, Prime Minister Lee said that it's good to have diversity. He asked, but how do you make sure diversity doesn't lead to polarisation? So what role should the media play in this? <laughs> I guess, like you know, I can I can jump in here and yeah. talk and talk about this a little bit because, <laughs> okay. very frankly, like this has been on my mind as well. The one thing I know for sure is mm. that we shouldn't look at the media as monolithic as well, mm-hmm. and that I think that different so like news organizations carry a different responsibility. So like, if you were looking at someone like the New York Times, I think that they would, or in fact, like a national broadsheet, like a national kind of like paper, right? Mm. I think that, that their their responsibility is a little bit different from mm. say like independent media. This is not to say that we're not responsible for what right. we publish as well. We definitely are. Yeah. But I don't think it's the role of the media to help people make up their minds. Mm. I think that where we come in is really to be able to educate and enlighten, mm-hmm. right? In an entertaining way. So like the yeah. entertainment is important as well. You look at it as like kind of like infotainment, which is why yeah. kind of like we put so much emphasis on the creative aspect of yes. things, you know, yeah. make it readable. All right. But I mean, like the end goal, you know, it really is to help the audience to understand mm-hmm. situations a little better, to understand culture a little mm-hmm. better, mm-hmm. and then they can come to their own conclusions, right? And I think that in terms of that polarization, right, mm-hmm. I think that a lot of it comes down to education. I mean, I don't want to echo what the government has been saying about <laughs> you know, digital literacy and all that, yeah. but I mean, like, I think that it feels like the most logical and practical approach. Mm-hmm. Because even if you don't look at the media, right, there are, just across the GE, for example, there are so many fine examples of citizen journalism, like, you know, coming mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. Everything from your memes to, like, just desktop commentators who are unbeholden to an editor mm-hmm. or like a newsroom, you know, you're not going to stop that. There are just too many people out there with platforms at the moment who right. are actively blogging or creating content. Right. And I, I think that the way we avoid that devolving into a bit of a cesspool, right, is that we are able to take a critical approach to things. Mm. Yeah. So you mentioned New York Times, right, which is interesting because recently they were involved in a little bit of a kerfuffle because the opinion editor, James Bennett, he came on board and he tried to offer different points of view mm. in the opinion section and one op-ed that he published <laughs> was from a conservative Republican senator who basically called for a military intervention to stop the race riots in the United States. And that, there was a whole lot of controversy around that. And James Bennett ended up resigning. Hmm. I just read a piece in The New Yorker about this. And the writer Andrew Morant said, Open debate is a wonderful thing, right? But is it possible to be so predisposed towards openness that you can blind yourself to what is in fact a clear and present danger? Yep. 
So when you're being so open, you're allowing different points of view. Some points of view maybe do not need airing, do not need amplification, perhaps. Yeah, I completely agree there, actually. Mm. I think that in the case of Tom Cotton, that particular op-ed, yeah. there was a real danger that it would incite violence. I mean, this comes down to a bit of the more technical aspects of things. I think that, like, for you to publish something like this, for mm-hmm, example, mm-hmm. You, the editors need to be very mindful of the tone. Yeah. So instead of, like, saying, roll in the troops, yeah. right, the headline itself could have been phrased as maybe more of a question and less of a kind of, like, an assertion or a statement. Right. Right. So I think it's these things that I think that went a little haywire. In Singapore, I feel, I mean, obviously, there'll be situations where, like, the the debate or the subject that we're talking about, right, has the potential to actually incite kind of, mm-hmm. like, hatred or violence. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where, like, there is a clear responsibility on the editors, right, to make sure that mm-hmm. they're not promoting that kind of result. Yeah. So sound editorial judgment is still needed, and that's why you yeah. still have a job, Mark. So if the, ob- <laughs> if, the <laughs> if the objective, exactly right, you know, like, so like, there's always that objective at the back of our heads, right? Like, mm-hmm. are we actually enlightening or educating people? So that needs to be objective as opposed to, okay, like, let's just put on an opinion and see what happens. Mm, (laughs) And how do you think youth need that guidance as well, right? Well, to a certain um, extent. So there are two aspects to this. Mm -hmm. If we look at the media outlets or the news editors, I think they have a few responsibilities. Of course, one is to inform the public. Classically, we learned this in uh, journalism school that one of their roles of news editors is also to act as the gatekeeper Mm. of information. So there is some form of informed judgment. I think the mantra there or the guiding principle there is responsible creation. And then in terms of youth, then it is about being able to consume critically. So it is a two-way street, Mm. right? You Mm. create responsibility and Mm. you consume critically. Mm. That's good, yeah. There is also this school of thought, right? It's called kind of like constructive journalism. So I think that that's pretty interesting where the end result, a lot of the content of the work that you do like, you know, ends up in something that's fairly constructive. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of idealistic and it's very lofty. So like, you know, I, I, yeah, I mean... it's fine. <laughs> so, I mean, it calls to mind uh, the SOAP Awards, which you're involved with, right? Yeah. Rice Media is involved yeah. with the stories of a pandemic, which tries to bring journalists around, I guess, a common purpose mm-hmm. and to promote journalistic mm-hmm. excellence at the same time. It's sort of meaningful journalism. It's kind of around what you're just yeah. talking about. So there is room for diversity, but at the same time, not too much diversity. There needs to be some kind of, I guess, a decision of what our values are first, right? What are our first principles? And then use that framework to guide this diversity. Mm. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. So I've heard something that is really interesting or it's woke, but not too woke. (laughs) (laughs) I think that maybe a better way to look at, I mean, for me, at least a better way to frame, for me, I think that diversity can be be a little overrated in a sense. Better way to look at it is just, you know, like just just to be critical about everything. Okay. Because like if you have that critical mindset, then you would generally be open to a wide range of views, Mm. but you don't take them at face value. Sure. Yeah. Because I think that diversity, like it's just almost an impossible ideal sometimes, especially in a smaller kind of organization, right? They all, it raises all sorts of kind of problems at the end of the day because how can we kind of like stay consistent on certain issues? Mm-hmm. But then knowing also that human beings are just inconsistent, generally yeah. speaking. I have friends who are like they're in the LGBTQ community and then they, at the same time, they're kind of like PAP supporters. You know, it's, it's possible to have these things. Mm. Yeah. yeah, You know, human beings are inconsistent. Mm. And I think that 
when that gets applied to say like creating content journalism, right? You know, these things tend to show up. Mm. So I think that forcing diversity is like it can yeah. be very impractical. Yeah, yeah, agree. agree. Yeah, and actually take it from another perspective. I think the diversity for youth is especially important. Mm. That they they have different views that they are exposed to mm-hmm. and that they can bounce their own identities off because they, they are at a very critical stage of their lives mm. when they are mm. forming their self identities and they don't need to be consistent. Mm-hmm. You know, one day they want to be an environmentalist, they upload a few pictures to see what the community thinks of them as an environmentalist. <laughs> Doesn't work out too well and then maybe tomorrow I'll try to be a feminist who can also bake a mean sourdough bread. Right. So <laughs> yeah. they are trying their identities. Yeah, trying on um, different hats. Trying, um, in fact, a lot of them have identity crisis during this period. And so so the media then becomes a space where they can explore their identities and diversity like that is important yeah. for mm. them to be able to pick and choose right. or to assemble their own self-identity. Great. I want to talk also now a little bit about the practical challenges, Mark. We've talked about your existential philosophical challenges. <laughs> how are you paying the bills and how do you keep a product like Rice Media afloat? Well, I mean, our main source of revenue would be native advertising. Mm. We are essentially a content marketing agency. So we create content for different brands and businesses. And at the same time, also, like, we fulfill a bit of a strategic comms kind of role as well. But do your readers buy that? Do they go like, oh, you're selling out? I think that most of them, they understand that, like, because we don't charge a subscription and we need to pay our staff. Sure. So the thing that we have to be mindful of is that, like, you know, we need to kind of understand what they like. Yeah. I mean, there's certain advertisers that we wouldn't work with. And like, and I think that there also needs to be a level of transparency. Though, because I mean, like, and I'm pretty cynical about this. Uh, people hate ads. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you know, they, they really hate. Uh, yeah. like, you know, like when you go to a movie, right? Like you show up 20 minutes late because you don't want, you want to skip yeah. all the advertising. <laughs> yeah, but ads yeah. pay the bills. But ads exactly. pay the bills, right? So that's his so dilemma. a big part of this actually, right, is managing the cost on the end in the sense that like, if we continue to chase views and chase the news, we're just circling the drain because like, you know, we won't have enough cash to keep up with that. The objective here is that we're not trying to create another CNA. We're not trying to create another mothership. Mm. Our goal is really be to impact journalism. We don't need to publish, say, 200 times a month. Sure. Right? 30 good pieces, for example. Yeah. That allows us to make as big of an impact, but mm. then like we keep our costs down. So a lot of it is very tight to the content model as well. Mm. But I mean, I'll be lying to say that if I say I figured this out, you know, 100%. <laughs> the end goal for us at some point is that we want to be able to license the content. Yeah. So like, you know, if you see a rice show and say like Netflix or HBO one day, right, you know, mm. then, then that, that'll be great. La. I'll look out for yeah, it. Yeah, you know, so that's what we are, right. we're trying to build. But right now, it's just advertising. Right. So you mentioned paying the bills and paying your staff as well. I was just listening to actually a new narrative podcast with Sean Francis Hahn, who's the editor of Activist News Site, Wake Up Singapore. Mm-hmm. Yep. And he's talked about the transitional challenges when editors leave after a few years because it's a non-paying job, essentially. And then they eventually find a job and they have to leave. It's just normal. It's part of growing up, adulting, right, Han? So then each new editor comes and brings their own input and that continuity perhaps is lost. So that is a challenge, right? I think that actually that is definitely a challenge simply because the news media industry, we're seeing a lot of like brain drain. I would say that a lot of the really talented writers or creators, right, they're not in journalism. But having said that, I think that, that right now there is enough talent. Like, you know, Singapore, I think in particular, or Southeast Asia, Singapore has, has enough I would dare say kind of like, you know, like world beating talent here. It's just that we've got to find it. Right. The, my policy is that people can't work for free at Rice. So like, you know, I mean, that, that there is like a... You a, don't exploit them. 
But it's also like, it also means that we spend a lot of money. Mm. So maybe here we can call out like if anyone <laughs> who has writing talent and wants a career in journalism, you can call Mark. Yes, please. Right? So, <laughs> so Han, we talked about role models for youth earlier. So do you think Mark is a role model? Of course. For young people. <laughs> I think he's able to pursue his passion. Right. Uh, some right. of us uh, with uh, <laughs> grey hair sensibilities have uh, given up on our hopes and dreams when we had to pay the bills when we were younger. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So, IPS is having a youth conference coming up, right? And Mark is actually going to be on it, from what I understand, Han? Yes. Mark will. It's one of the speakers on our panels. This is the Young Singaporeans Conference? Yep. It's a three-day conference. We hold it every two years. We bring together young Singaporeans to talk about their personal choices, about life, uh, about work, uh, about their values. And uh, this year, it's all about choices. And it's going to be digital because of the pandemic. But we want them to not just explore choices now, mm. but uh, the choices that they are making towards uh, Singapore in the year 2030. Right, because they're going to be shaping the future, aren't mm-hmm. they? That's quite exciting. Uh, I'm not sure how I feel about the role model portion. I, mean, like I, I, I can try, <laughs> but like I can talk about some of the wrong choices I've made. Uh, right. And then like, you know, how it turned out okay. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. We're going to take it home. I'm going to ask you guys, how do you see the media landscape in 2030? I mean, if anything, if the last GE is anything to go by, I think that in about 10 years, because the media usually reflects the cultural and social context as well. So we might not necessarily see more media outlets because, I mean, I think that we're a fairly small country as well. So there's limited room for that. But I hope to see, like, you know, I would say more diverse options within the media outlets itself. So, so there's like, room know, like, for more diversity. Optimistically speaking, you would see more diversity in, say, like places like ST, for example. Right. Yeah. Simply because, you know, like that's kind of like if the context of population kind of like moves that way, mm. then there will be a need for that. Yeah. So I think that that's good. Yeah. So my crystal ball and actually my hope is that in 2030, the news that we consume or what we think of local news is not just in Singapore, but in the region. And uh, young Singaporeans can venture out to beyond our tiny island to think we are a citizen of ASEAN. Yeah, mm. I would love to see that happen. That would be yeah, fantastic. Would love to see that happen. And there's yeah. the real diversity there happening. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Han and Mark, for your time today. It's been a great discussion. And thank you too to all of you listening in. See you again next time. Thanks. Thank you. On Diversity is a podcast inspired by the Institute of Policy Studies Managing Diversity's research program. We're available wherever you get your podcasts. Swipe on the cover art to see the show notes for more info on this episode or visit us on our website, ipscommons.sg. Do subscribe to be notified when we have a new episode. And if you like what you heard, tell a friend or give us a five-star review. It really helps other people find us. I'm your host, Ong So Chin, reminding you to always keep your body healthy and your mind open. Goodbye.